Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden. We had planned a two-part broadcast to follow last week's election. Last week was set aside to discuss just where we were, only we weren't really at all, all that sure. The red wave never materialized. We didn't know who had control at Congress. Tonight we continue the discussion with a more in-depth look at nuts and bolts. We have the two houses of Congress, and each by the narrowest of margins, falling into different hands. Just what's changing and what lies ahead? My co-host tonight, Emmy-nominated legal and political analyst Dean Johnson. Good evening, everyone. Indeed, Jeff. What does lie ahead? We're eight days out from Election Day, and the election is still not quite over. The red wave prophesied by all of the pundits, including me, never materialized. But were the events of last week something unique to 2022 or the harbinger of something much larger in the way of a political trend? That's what we're going to explore in the coming hour. Jeffrey? As always, we want you, our most important guest, to be part of this conversation. But please keep any comments short and civil. Give us a call at 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. But bear in mind that just as a physician won't diagnose your family member based on a phone call, our attorney guest can't provide you legal advice or legal analysis. They don't have all the facts relating to a given case. However, we're happy to pass along the legal principle to help assist you in your decision making. And while their legal guidance mightn't be the positions of their employers or clients, our attorney guests are here to help. Dean? Joining us tonight, two outstanding guests. Lawrence Douglas is the James J. Grossfeld Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College. Professor Douglas is the author of Will He Go? Trump, the Looming Looming Electoral Meltdown of 2020, in which Professor Douglas predicted almost to the hour the events of January 6th. He is most recently the author of an article in The Guardian entitled, the Supreme, is the, the Supreme Court is Turning the Constitution into a Suicide Pact. Also, also joining us tonight, Brent Turner is a graduate of Lincoln Law School in San Francisco and has a degree granted by University of San Diego in International Legal Studies from Oxford. Brent is a community activist whose efforts have included volunteer work for the homeless, children's health and education, civil rights, and environmental issues. Mr. Turner was instrumental in the creation of the San Francisco County Voting Systems Task Force and has been a director of communications for Open Voting Consortium. Brent has been recognized as a groundbreaking activist for sustainability and dedicates himself to local, state, and federal issues. Mr. Turner was recently featured in the award-winning reform documentary, the Real Activist, with former CIA Director Jim Woolsey and Peter Coyote. And with that, Brent, 
Professor Douglas, welcome to Your Legal Rights. And to you, ladies and gentlemen, tonight's a discussion which we want you to participate. So call us at 866-798-825. And with that, gentlemen, welcome. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thanks to the panelist, Lawrence, and, and Jeff, to you and, and to Dean for hosting. All right. Well, glad to have you here. And as our listeners know, I like to open things up with a big question. And the question that's on everybody's mind and has been for the last several days, where did the pundits go wrong? That red wave was supposed to roll in. Every metric that we measure things by, the fact that it's a midterm election, the fact that there's always low turnout, and that favors um, the red voters, the fact that, that uh, the, the president's employ- or, uh, popularity rating was low, the fact that the economy um, was in trouble, inflation is high, all of that indicated, yes, there might be a red wave, but it didn't materialize. What happened? Well, I'm happy to take a stab at that, Tim. Please do. And, um, I mean, it seems that um, that at least some Republican voters, a small percentage of Republican voters, apparently care a little bit more about democracy than the overwhelming number of their leaders. And uh, and it seems that with a lot of the, the kind of material that's come out since the election, it suggests that, again— the Republican voters, I mean, if you look at Pennsylvania, if you look at some of these other um, states, about 7% of Republicans uh, seem to have been so turned off by the threats to democracy and by the big lie and uh, by this idea that this election really was representing such as a, something of an existential referendum on the future of American uh, democratic rule that they uh, turned against the uh, candidates that had been um, anointed by um, by um, former President Trump. And, uh, you know, and apparently also a certain number of independent voters likewise decided that um, the future of American democracy, at least in this particular election, was a little bit more important than um, than the price of gas and the inflation rate. One of the so big it, stories that I don't think the big, that is being told is just how the pundits got it so wrong. And that ties right into what Dean asked. But the other leg of it is how many races were called for Democrats only to fizzle after the initial proje- after the initial projections. People left. The polls closed. The Democrats are way ahead. And then all of a sudden it was neck and neck all night long, race after race. How is it the pundits have lost touch? What did you say they were calling for the Democrats or calling for the Republicans? For the weeks and months leading into the election, it's all been about the Democrats are facing doom and gloom. The Republicans are going to have their glory. On election night, state after state, particularly the East Coast, they would look at these election results where they saw initially a huge wave of blue voters, which surprised everybody. And then as the night went on, those faded, and you saw a race that was too close to call, sometimes for days. How are they so out of touch? Well, I guess there are two separate issues there. One is just about the pundits, and I think um, Dean already confessed that um, he had gotten things wrong. And uh, since I believe in... um, 
in uh, collaborative uh, confessions, I'll say that I got things wrong as well. And uh, there were, again, you had a number of these very disturbing, I thought the one, the poll that I found the most disturbing was something that uh, was about, um, probably about three weeks before the election, when the New York Times reported that um, 70% believed that the, 70% of the electorate uh, believed that um, that democracy was threatened in this election, and yet only 7% uh, considered that something of uh, importance with respect to um, their voting behavior. Um, that seemed to be a very disconcerting result. And yet, you know, maybe 7% was enough to uh, shift the needle, uh, especially when you have such, you know, basically kind of narrowly contested um um, elections up and down the board. I mean, in terms of the what you might describe as a kind of blue wave that then turned into these kind of very narrowly called uh, into these uh, very narrow to these really tightly contested contests. Um, I'm not sure why people would have gotten at ahead of the narrative on those. Um, I mean, part of the problem is I think a lot of people assume that the late counting votes tend to swing in the direction of Democrats usually tend to see the blue wave um, overcoming Republican leads uh, rather than anything going the other direction. But I think it also reminds us that um, that it's not simply um, Democrats that rely on um, things like mail-in ballots. And so it's Republicans as well. Let me just say, I was never happier to be wrong. Um I, I, I said at the at the end of the election night, maybe we've got a glimmer of hope. But it seems to me, Lawrence, that what you're saying is that this is a one off, that people were so um, upset by and understandably by the threats to democracy, by issues like abortion, by the mo- more outrageous claims of some of the, the Trump endorsed candidates that they voted differently from what they would be predicted to vote and what they would normally vote. So is this just something that is unique to 2022? Or is there a trend here that we can look towards in 2024 and beyond? Again, I guess I would say that it's very difficult to predict. I mean, I think one thing is you can't keep going back to the American people telling them that this election is an existential referendum on the future of democracy. I mean, and I think that becomes uh, people almost would tire of that. And so um, uh, one hopes that um, the repudiation of the big lie that we see uh, at work in these midterms, um, that we don't have to renegotiate and revisit this stuff uh, come 2024. But of course, there's no assurance that we would, um, that we wouldn't have to revisit this, given the fact that, um, we, as we know, all know, you know, Trump redeclared his, uh, that he will be a candidate again. Um, you know, I guess one of the other things maybe to mention is, uh, in terms of the good outcomes that we saw, is Previously, I don't think people pay a lot of attention on the national scene about these down-ballot elections, things like who becomes the Secretary of State in Arizona, Nevada, and Michigan. That usually is not a function, not a, um, a subject of intense in, of national um, uh, news. But in this case, given the fact that these are the 
uh, people who will potentially be certifying the state results in the 2024 election, it was extremely important that these big lie um, uh, conspiracy minded loyalists to Donald Trump in states like Arizona, Nevada and Michigan all lost convincingly in their bids to basically position themselves as the fulcrum points for the people who will be certifying the results come 2024. That's a very important outcome of this uh, midterm election. Yeah, and the the great fear, I think, was that um, if those people were elected, what had been attempted in Congress to overturn the election in in 2020 would be successful in 2024. Have we averted that crisis or is it still looming? I don't know if we've entirely uh, averted it. I mean, it is great that, again, these kind of people like, um, you know, um, uh, Mark Fitchum and James Marchant and uh, Christina Caramo, that they all lost in their bid to become uh, Secretary of State. We should bear in mind, though, that there are even kind of uh, election officials below that rank, people really on the kind of the level of districts um, who if they are loyalists and buying into the big lie, they can sow a lot of discord if an election turns on very narrow margins. I mean, let us bear in mind that in 2020, uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, Biden wins by over well over 7 million votes in the popular vote, uh, he basically wins his electoral college vote by 44,000 votes in Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia combined. And again, if you put people in real, relatively you know, minor district-level positions who are willing to muddy the waters about the electoral outcome on the district level, it's possible that they could still sow chaos in 2024. But I do think we should all breathe a sigh of relief that some of the more... Um, uh, the more high-profile uh, big lie uh, conspiracy theorists all lost convincingly in their attempt to occupy the positions that will play a critical role in the certification of the results in 2024. You know, in talking about some of these down-ballot races and some of the people that are positioning themselves or trying to position themselves, that makes me think about some of the things that have been accomplished in the last several years towards transparency. Brent, do you want to talk a little bit about where we are now with open source voting software? Sure, Jeff. I'm glad to. And thanks again for having me back. Uh, And I want to associate myself with the the comments of Professor Douglas and also just mention that I think it's uh, fairly obvious if you get someone as astute as the professor in a state of confusion, you know that the subject matter is in itself confusing. And I don't know if the pundits have ever been in touch or the pollsters have ever been in touch, but for the last 20 some odd years I've been paying attention, I I would say that I haven't concluded that they have been in touch for at least the last couple decades. It seems to be common that they are off base. Uh, As far as what we're trying to do to avoid another 2020 situation where you have the losers rioting and that civil unrest issue. Uh, we have been advocating for the last 20 some odd years uh, a transparent election system where you can clearly explain to the loser that they lost. Not that that will necessarily 
avoid civil unrest, but certainly it takes some of their position away as far as disputing a legitimate election. And I think that uh, the 2020 election, to our trained eyes, was fairly vanilla and regular. Uh, but the 2016 election for Trump was one that raised some eyebrows in the technology community and, again, re reinvigorated our work uh, toward open source paper ballot election systems. And to your question, uh, these were recently piloted in New Hampshire in a few different jurisdictions. Uh, we've had two states now, ironically and interestingly, Mississippi as a lead on open source technology to replace the Microsoft closed source, what we call secret proprietary software in elections and replacing that with a, a more modern technology that provides the ability to show the software to the public so that um, not only is the public in then a better position to understand the election and accept the results, it also creates an environment whereby we can best protect against either what we call inside interference agents or outside interference agents, um, noting that a, a oligarch associated with Putin recently, when asked the question, does Russia meddle with United States elections, responded with, we have, we will, and we will continue to. So we always want to make sure we have the most robust defense and, and therefore the ability to garner confidence uh, toward the election. So New Hampshire is leading the country right now in that uh, respect. Brent, Brent let, me, let me just ask, I, I think I'm asking on behalf of our listeners, it sounds like open source would make software more vulnerable to that kind of tampering as opposed to closed source. How, how, what is the specific advantage? If you could just tell us in layman's terms, um, the advantage of open soft, uh, open source software for voting. Well, uh, to, to answer that question, we really have to go back about 30 years to say that that particular conversation was asked and answered and concluded about 30 years ago. So that's, that's a, that's a pretty stale one. Uh, the Department of Defense, the Air Force, NASA, all utilize open source systems. And uh, what the point of the open source voting community has been is that if, the, uh, you, if you have the ability to control the process, remove the vendors from the front seat and put them in more of a support position, that really is a, a, a good idea for elections. Not only does it inspire confidence, but it literally cre creates an environment whereby if some bad person, let's just say, wanted to meddle with an election, which we know they do, um, and happened to get a bug inside the system, then at least you could address that in real time and, and deal with the issue of the bug. Currently, the problem is if a bug was to get inside the systems, which unfortunately with the current state of vendors and, and the legacy proprietary systems, it is not difficult to put a bug inside a system. So therefore you're in a position where you can't see the bug and it, and it can live and do, do a bad deed. So that's the reason why, again, your NASA, your Department of Defense and the Air Force utilize open source systems. It's just a, it creates a better environment for 
perusing the code and making sure that there's no poor activity within the software. Well, would this be possibly a job for something like blockchain technology? The blockchain does play into this concept and there's some very smart technology experts that are major advocates for blockchain. At that point, you do tend to lose the um, understanding of the general public. So we talk about blockchain, but primarily keep our focus on what's called general public license open source software to replace the black box current style. And then you mesh it with a proper paper ballot. And these are the state of the art systems now being demonstrated in, in uh, New Hampshire. But California has led on this. Unfortunately, there are political will issues in California that have uh, prohibited real progress, but we're still hard at work and hopeful the current Secretary of State will follow the footsteps of a former Secretary of State, Deborah Bowen, who was forward thinking on this years back. Uh, we ran into a little glitch with now Senator Padilla, but we're hopeful that the current Secretary of State uh, will uh, move forward, Dr. Weber, and, and uh, create pilot systems in San Francisco to follow New Hampshire. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden. Tonight, we're discussing talking, we're really talking about where we are in light of last week's election. My guests tonight are Professor Lawrence Douglas, the James J. Grossfeld Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College, and Brent Turner, Director of Communications for Open Voting Consortium. My co-host is Emmy-nominated legal and political analyst Dean Johnson. And, of course, there's all of you. And if you have questions for my guests, or if you just want to join in our conversation, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, you should call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866 866- Seven nine eight eight two five five, and as always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. We're talking the election. We're talking the system under which elections are run, predicted, or even decided. But you're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. Just call us. We'd love to hear from you. You know, I, I'd like to follow up with Lawrence about whether this is. 2022 is a one-off or if there's a trend here. One thing that just made me jump for joy when I was listening to to the election returns is that there was an extraordinary turnout among young voters. And I'm wondering, again, is this a one-off or is this possibly the trend? I mean, we have Generation Z voters who um, suddenly find their constitutional rights taken away from them with the stroke of a pen. These are the people who grew up with school shooters almost as a norm and are now seeing gun control laws declared unconstitutional. And some of them are going out into the workplace. They're experiencing layoffs. Uh, Facebook is talking about, I'm sorry, Meta is talking about laying off 11,000 workers. Some of them are experiencing uh, the pains of unionization and, and resistance to unionization. 
Is it possible that maybe we've had a little cultural acceleration here, that all of these trends have brought those young voters on much earlier than, than they were expected to come on? And maybe that's something that's uh, that's that's going to be permanent. I mean, again, uh, I, I guess I would be, um, since I've already demonstrated that I'm not a particularly good pro- prognosticator when it comes to such matters, maybe I'll simply uh, join you in the hope that that is the case. And um, I mean, it does seem that um, the erosion of um, constitutional rights, rights that have been recognized for a half century as pretty foundational to uh, at least women's expectations of the way they can organize their lives. um, That's a pretty shocking thing to suddenly have what was a constitutional right now basically uh, being eliminated. Um, And... uh, and we know that the road decision for many years, for decades, really was a galvanizing and motivating force um, on the Republican side. And one might uh, hope that um, this isn't simply a um, one-off uh, expression of upset with the, with the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision from this past summer, but it will be, continue to be a... Um, a issue that galvanizes people and that will continue to do that uh, in elections um, to come. Um, And I also, again, share the hope that uh, this kind of concern for democracy that we saw at work here also um, continues to motivate uh, voters. I mean, one of the things that we also saw is, uh, I guess it was, you know, when Mitch McConnell is the one that we have to start quoting for um, insight, I suppose, all things are all, you know, it's a little bit problematic perhaps. But, you know, when he talks about the quality of candidates uh, counting, um, I think that's also a way of saying that uh, the American people, at least a certain percentage of them, are simply not prepared to elect um, people to higher office who have expressed basic contempt for the very democratic process that they're participating in. Um, and hopefully going forward, Um, One thing that um, Republican um, candidates will learn is that that is not a winning strategy. It's not a winning strategy to express uh, contempt and uh, to cast aspersions on the integrity of the electoral process that they're participating in. It's a very dangerous game to play, and we can be somewhat relieved that at least to a, a degree it's blown up in their face. Now, when I say that, we should also bear in mind that the House of Representatives, I mean, right now, at the most recent count, the Republicans have 218 members of the House. Of those 218, 150 have expressed, to a greater or lesser degree, um, support of the big lie. They have, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, have kind of chimed in with questioning the results of the 2020 election. So I don't think we can say that we are out of the woods with regards to the threats that American democracy face from the GOP. So with a division between the Senate and the House of Representatives and very narrow margins in each house, are are we looking at a national government that's even more dysfunctional than it has been in past years? I mean, it certainly looks like we have a pretty terminally dysfunctional um, Congress. On the other hand, you know, we had relatively good news coming out today um, with the unexpected news that it looks like uh, there is support uh, for federal law recognizing gay marriage. 
and uh, that you had a, you know, not insignificant <laughs> number of Republican senators uh, joining that, uh, joining enough to make it basically um, uh, filibuster proof. So it, it's not necessarily the case that it's all gloom and doom and all terminal dysfunction. But um, I think it's fair to say that we can't expect a tremendous amount um, from this Congress. Yeah, I think we're seeing just very small glimmers of light, pinpoints of, you know, glimmers of hope, pinpoints of light. Kansas, for example, one of the reddest states in the union, rejecting an anti-abortion measure. Kentucky doing the same Kentucky thing. Kentucky as well, right. Yeah, and now, um, you know, as you say, uh, Congress seriously considering uh, something to protect same-sex marriage, which has been one of those rights that ever since the Dobbs decision has been uh, thought of as on the precipice. So maybe some glimmers of hope. With these yeah. very narrow majorities in both houses and each in someone else's hands, does that create a glimmer that there may be some hope that someone somewhere will start reaching across the aisle? Well, I guess it, it all turns on you know who those people are. At some point, you have to actually start pinpointing people and saying, who are the people that I can work with? And it does seem that there, you know, we, we saw just this thing with the um, with gay marriage in the Senate. That seems like there are people that you can work with, uh, perhaps um, again with the um, it will be interesting to see what kind of leadership uh, Kevin McCarthy is able to exercise over um, his fellow members of the House and. You know, how much power people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene are going to be able to exercise, um, that remains very much an an open question. And whether he's going to have to make concessions to these kind of the radical branch of the House um, in order to secure his, uh, his speakership. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. We'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Again, that number is 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Now back to your legal rights. And coming back, um, now I want to open up a topic that something that was hammered into us, and I think probably you and me both um, when we were political science students, the notion of the median voter. Uh, the the idea that one of the reasons that America is so stable is that voters cl- tend to cluster around this kind of moderate, pragmatic, issue-oriented um, kind of voter, and most of your votes are going to be found there. So that the winning candidate is the person who moves the closest to the mindset of that median voter. It, and I guess my question is, is polarization something that's really been overrated? Is it something that has been either created or um, exaggerated 
by the media? And it, are we seeing the return of the median moderate voter, both in the polling booth um, and possibly, as, as you seem to imply, um, in Congress? And is that a good thing? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, these earlier kind of the classic studies in uh, American political science always basically said that uh, American politics is basically played between the 40-yard lines. Everything kind of, you know, goes more or less and kind of, um, in fact, that was the critique of American politics. The critique of American politics was uh, there was very little variety between the two parties. And you actually have found uh, people over the time saying that's that's the real defect. What's the real difference between the Republicans and the Democrats? Of course, I think uh, recent events have shown that not to be the case. I don't think that polarization is entirely uh, a fanciful thing that's been created by the media. Um, obviously, it's created by the media in a sense that the siloed uh, social media environments that we have these days has contributed to a reality. And the re so I do think polarization is a reality. I also think it's important to bear in mind that um, I don't think we can really talk about symmetric polarization. I really think it is asymmetric that uh, what has happened to the Republican Party really is quite shocking, I believe. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, a scant 10 years ago, 2012, uh, Mitt Romney was the standard bearer of the Republican Party. Kind of astonishing to think that a scant decade ago, he was the standard bearer of the Republican Party. Um, I think one of the things we need to, you know, we I don't know if we have time to really go into this right now, but, you know, obviously there are structural things uh, that have very much contributed to polarization and that have pushed us away from the 40, between the 40 and 40, between the 40 yard lines model of American politics. And I think gerrymandering is, is really very key to that. Um, gerrymandering has kind of um, suddenly made so many districts and so many contests um, not really real contests. And it, it then means that uh, the real contests are done on the primary level. And even the way we structure primaries, um, it contributes to this uh, appeal to the base. And, uh, and the general election in many, many districts no longer depends on reaching across the aisle. And I think that has contributed to the polarization that I believe is real. One of the extreme examples we've seen of that seems to be Florida, where four years ago, eight years ago, we had a lot of mixed districts. And by redistricting, the entire state went red. Even Miami-Dade went, went red. And it looks like the legislature was successful, really, in moving the lines to dilute the opposition vote. Yeah. I mean, this pack and crack is a very, it's a very um, unfortunate uh, feature of our contemporary democratic scene. And of course, we should also bear in mind that, you know, the Supreme Court just a couple of years ago in this uh, Rucho v. Common Cause uh, case, they reviewed uh, gerrymandering and uh, Chief Justice Roberts concluded that uh, gerrymandering represents a genuine um, harm to the quality of constitutional democracy at the same time that he concluded that um, it's not a ju justiciable matter for the Supreme Court, that it really is up to the political branches of government to kind of figure the way out of gerrymandering 
And it's not something that is susceptible, at least to this present Supreme Court, uh, to a judicial remedy. Let me turn it to Art from San Francisco. Art, welcome to your legal rights. Thank you for this interesting program. I'm wondering, I'd like to turn your attention to the Supreme Court uh, and the idea that the court may be getting so far ahead of the American people that there's going to be a, t- a tension there. And you've, I think we've seen with this most recent election, the rejection, in, in effect, of allowing a, um, an, a, a Supreme Court that, that seems to be um, interested in, you know, pushing the agenda of a minority, a religious right-wing minority, onto the American people against our will. So maybe you could discuss uh, what could happen, what are the remedies, could the court number of uh, justices be increased, what what could we do to remedy this problem where the court is getting going, uh, responding to a, a, an agenda that doesn't really sit well with the majority of the American people? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very important point. I mean, it's unmistakably the case that this is the most conservative Supreme Court that we've had um, in the last hundred years. I mean, you really have to go back to the early years of the New Deal under uh, Franklin Roosevelt to find a similarly uh, conservative Supreme Court. Um, you know, as um, incredibly um, uh, disturbing as the Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case overturning Roe v. Wade was, on another level, um, what the decision did is it basically it returned the question of abortion to the democratic process. And um, and maybe the, the people of the United States are going to answer that call. Um, maybe the people of the United States are going to say, actually, we, we care about uh, securing uh, this right to abortion. And if we can't rely on um, five members of an unelected elite to do it, uh, we'll do it through the democratic process itself. And so it's possible to imagine that some of the very uh, problems that the caller has identified with the present composition of the Supreme Court could actually be a um, an organizing principle for uh, a more progressive um, uh, democratic politics. At least that's that's one possible, um, perhaps. Um, positive way to gloss a, a, a disturbing um, judicial trend. Yeah, this was one of the areas that I wanted to explore. It seems like this dynamic among the voters, the legislature, state legislatures, and the Supreme Court is what is driving results like we've seen in this election day. Um, as you said, uh, the Supreme Court ironically may have started or, or set the spark of a backlash against Republican strategy. Um, there is, it, we, we have created now a, pot, a very dysfunctional legislature, so checks and balances are dead, so the Supreme Court can pursue its agenda almost you know, without any, any kind of constraint, which may lead to a further backlash. On the other hand, um, we have uh, Harper versus Roe sitting, waiting to be decided this term, which may uh, 
cut back on those very voting rights acts. So it seems like we've got almost a three body problem here and we've got so many variables going that that's why it becomes so hard to predict. But the, the, the landscape doesn't look good. At least. Right. To me. Yes. And, and I think that's important to bear in mind. And it, it, and there is a big difference between when the Supreme court does something like in Dobbs, which basically kind of returns an issue to the democratic process and other decisions that they made, for example, in the New York case about gun control, where basically they're striking down laws, you know, laws that have been on the books for 100 years with regards to gun control in the case of the uh, the New York Sullivan law, um, where they're basically foreclosing democratic activity, where they're basically saying, no, no democratic majority can tamper with the sacrosanct Second Amendment rights. And uh, likewise, I think we need to be very vigilant in what the Supreme Court continues to do with voting and uh, whether it continues to act in a way that uh, weakens the protection, particularly of a minority and historically um, discriminated against groups, um, whether it continues to weaken protections of their voting rights and also whether it basically eliminates the review on the part of state courts uh, from reviewing uh, um, schemes on the part of state legislatures to basically control uh, the outcome in their respective states. But we also have to be very careful before invoking such remedies as to pack the courts because the Democrats are unlikely to hold the Senate and the White House forever. And once that precedent has been set, which we haven't touched in many years, we'll find that others may want to do the same thing. And it's going to be very difficult to unwind that and get a lid back on that box. Let me turn it to Fran in San Francisco. Fran, welcome to Your Legal Rights. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for the program. Thank you for joining us. You're on the air. I have to turn my radio down here. Okay. Um, I have a couple of, I would like to bring this up for you to just give your opinions on, and I'll say it separately, um, on the negative side of things here. Um, Musk's um, taking over Twitter, which connects with what you're talking about to me. Also, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> Trump's um, deciding that he's just... Uh, going to run again I think yesterday and um, the control of the uh, House by the Republicans these three things right now are very outstanding in my mind and I want to know opinions on the, the effect of including the Musk thing because I want to know how much stuff is going to be going on on Twitter number with Trump now coming in again and what he's going to do, how that will influence things in what we're talking about. Uh, I would appreciate hearing any thoughts about any of it, and thank you. How do you feel about those things? Do you feel that those are connected? That is, Musk taking over Twitter right on to Trump coming back into the game. Well, Jeff, I think that we can all stipulate that social media had a dramatic effect on the culture and has had a dramatic effect on the culture and people living in a vacuum, uh, his emboldened 
uh, groups that are on the fringe. So to that extent, uh, Elon's apparent uh, friendliness with Trump doesn't really bode well for Twitter. And I think between that and his uh, relationship with Kanye and so forth will we'll be eventually, I think he'll, he'll, uh, his power will lessen. But we still have Facebook to deal with and, and the other social media sites. So it all sort of plays into almost creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I want to reiterate that the only way we can really, I mean, we, there's, can be a lot of conjecture about the mentality of the American public. But the only way to get a real good read on it is through having very precise election systems. And currently, I, I don't want to be the bringer of bad news because obviously the issue has been hijacked by Republicans and, and uh, it, it's almost a third rail issue now or it is a third rail issue. But we, we have to understand the only way to get a good read on the psychology of the American public is to have precise voting systems. And we need to get there immediately. I think Trump and therefore the Supreme Court, um, you know, their legitimacy will always be in question now, which is unfortunate. Um, I disagree with you a little bit, Jeff. I think sometimes you fight fire with fire. And I, so I am a proponent of taking action to stack people within the Supreme Court and try to dilute the current makeup, but we can have that conversation some other time. But, but I do want to state clearly that I think there's only one way to read the psychology of America, especially in this crucial moment, and that is to get a real strong, secure vote count utilizing the technology I mentioned previous, the open source, and then be able to show the loser that they lost, which right now I think we're going to, hopefully not, but I think we are likely to see this issue of civil unrest continue as races tend to be close. I don't think they might, I think, I think if we're lucky, they're not going to be as close moving forward as they are now, because as you mentioned, Jeff, I think we have the up and coming generations that are, are going to be better than us if that's appropriate to say. And and the, the, the youth is going to carry us through with more blue wave. Um, as long as we can get this voting system issue figured out, and that includes gerrymandering issues and, and all other uh, adjunct issues. Professor, do you agree? Um, well, I certainly agree uh, fully with Brent's point about uh, the importance of having um, voting systems that are not vulnerable to attack and that uh, voting systems that can create a very clear paper trail, uh, ones that kind of that we can demonstrate um, the results in a in a in a very kind of clear and empirical fashion. So I am um, I applaud the uh, work that Brent's doing in this regard, and I agree with him completely. Uh, he and I might uh, disagree a little bit about um, the wisdom of um, packing the Supreme Court. Um, I think likewise, Jeff, I kind of also worry that um, whenever the, um, whatever the Democrats do, the Republicans then do 10 times over. 
And so I do kind of worry about uh, over-politicizing the court by just uh, expanding its members. I think there are probably other things that we could also contemplate doing for the purposes of trying to restrain uh, the Supreme Court. Um, but as I also saw, said, that maybe one of the upsides is that it will kind of reinvigorate um, the democratic process itself. I mean, one of the things I think we need to bear in mind is a lot of us came of age or learned about the court through the work of the um, Warren Court, uh, the tenure of Chief Justice Earl Warren from 1953 to 1969. Uh, that really carried on for a couple of decades after that, when the court was really seen as this great protector of civil liberties. Um, that was something of an anomalous period in the history of the Supreme Court. You look at the larger history of the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has not been a particularly progressive force in American politics. And um, and uh, maybe we just kind of need to re-educate ourselves about the expectations that we um, that we place uh, on this judicial institution, and kind of look to ourselves to really kind of guide our own democratic destiny. You know, Fran raised a question that I have been meaning to raise, which is, um, you know, Lawrence, you wrote a great book about will he leave? Well, he's back. Um, and he announced his presidency. And of course, we're talking about none other than Donald J. Trump. And if you listen to the news last night, I'm sure you had that same cringy feeling that I had, which is that all the air had been sucked out of the room. And the only thing that was worth talking about among the pundits and the panels was psychoanalyzing Donald Trump. And my question is, given that we've had what appears to be a vote for democracy and a vote for the democratic process, does the candidacy of the guy who was the ringleader of the attempt to undermine that process really matter anymore? Well, to my mind, it certainly matters. But I think the point that you're making, Dean, is a very important one, which is that I don't think the media can let itself get sucked into um, to reporting on every little um, outrageous thing that emerges out of Trump's mouth. Um, it's kind of ironic for me to um, to um, draw our attention to the way the New York Post, uh, some of you might be feeling in the West Coast, you might be a little less familiar with the New York Post, but it's kind of a, um, a, um, a rag in New York that is uh, published by uh, Rupert Murdoch. And, um, and of course, Murdoch had, in many ways, he had helped create uh, Donald Trump. But in this particular case, uh, the New York Post, I think, covered his uh, announcement on page 27. And on page 10 and 27, they had kind of a hilarious little description saying 78-year-old um, Florida, Florida businessman uh, facing host of legal troubles announces candidacy, which um, I think that's about the kind of media response that, that we need to um, mobilize, and we can't let ourselves be sucked back into this vortex of um, Trump crazy world. Yeah, I agree. We we need to let the candidacy die of inattention. The one thing that Donald Trump cannot stand, and here I go psychoanalyzing Donald Trump, is people not paying attention to him. He even takes over the day of his own daughter's wedding to announce his candidacy. What do you think, Jeff? I think he's always an interesting person to try to get a handle on. 
But the media spends so much time doing that, it empowers them. <coughs> and the more that the media thinks he's dangerous and tells us he's dangerous, the more they empower him. If you want to disabuse the country of the notion of bringing him back, the best thing the media could do is simply ignore him. And that's the one thing that he can't tolerate is just being ignored. And what strikes me are the voices of moderation emerging from the most unlikely of places, people that were solidly behind him two years ago and are saying, no, we need to move on. Um, It's time. I I think even uh, Chris Christie, who boasted a friendship of some 20 years with him, was commenting on whether the Republicans are going to remain the party of one or be the party of all of us. Well, they can have it. It's not all of us. But nevertheless, beginning to realize that there are limits to how far this is going to go. Rupert Murdoch disavowed his candidacy. His own daughter said, this time around, she'll always support her father, but she's not going to get involved in any elections or any politics anymore. So you're beginning to see some things come unraveled. Hopefully, there's hope There's hope there. Uh, we're getting kind of close to the end of the hour. We have a few minutes left, but I wanted to give you guys a chance for any final thoughts, and then if left, if time's left, we can take another call or jump in with some questions. But let me jump first to Brent. You're leaving a little bit early. I want to give you a chance for any final thoughts that you have. Well, first of all, I want to thank your station and the and the public and, and the professor uh, and Dean for the great show and uh, very insightful. And and just to say, I hope we get a chance to do it again. Uh, the work to uh, better the democracy and to, and to keep the democracy uh, remains. And, and I appreciate everybody's effort toward that end. We're looking uh, again to find out more about what California is going to do to lead the country regarding open source paper ballot elections that inspire voter confidence. So if anybody is uh, like-minded and thinks that's a good idea, uh, please contact contact the Secretary of State, Dr. Weber, and let her know that your county might want to take a look at creating options for your own registrar so that they're not locked into the current batch of three vendors that, because of 2020, uh, some of them are in favor with the Democratic Party, but uh, some of us remember 2016, that those are the same companies that gave us Trump. And so we're, we're uh, always vigilant and look forward to better days ahead for America. So thanks to all of you. And, you know, and you before, before you, you go, go Brent, Brent, some of us remember the movie Man of the Year, which looked at some of that same software and the unlikely way in which we elected a fictionalized version, version of Bill Maher because one of the candidates had a couple sets of double consonants in his name. And that a very software glitch, very much like what we could get when everything is in very few hands and they won't let us look at it. It uh, might actually be what we got uh, in 2016. And there's some very smart people you mentioned earlier the uh, documentary, The Real Activist, with myself and my dear friend, uh, Jim Wolsey, the former director of the CIA. If anybody gets a chance to see that on Amazon Prime, it's a 30-minute short that has won some awards, and it talks about the science and technology aspect of the election system. 
and uh, you know, uh, we're, we're remaining concerned, but, but there is some light in the tunnel and uh, we're moving slowly but surely. So thanks to you all. Thank you for joining us. And Professor Douglas, would you like to take a couple minutes? Yeah, I suppose maybe one thing is um, also to um, uh, to just piggyback on Brent's suggestions about how to secure our electoral process. And this also maybe goes to the issue about uh, what opportunities uh, we might have for some kind of bipartisan work, given the divided Congress. Um, I do hope, and I actually think there's a good likelihood that we will see changes to the Electoral Count Act of 1887. The Electoral Count Act of 1887 is meant to kind of help Congress troubleshoot um, uh, situations in which there's a kind of a dispute about uh, the results that are submitted to Congress by uh, the states in a presidential election. And unfortunately, this Electoral Count Act of 1887 is very, very poorly drafted. It remains on the books. And it at least um, contributed uh, to some of the chaos that we saw on January 6th. And so uh, it seems like there is bipartisan support for um, amending that law. And I think that would be a helpful step, a small step uh, out that it may be, but a helpful step uh, to securing our electoral system so that we don't see a repeat of the kind of mischief from uh, January sixth in um in the next presidential election and dean did you want to take about 30 seconds yeah i'll just say uh in this election day the wave didn't show up but what's happening is the tide is turning and the most important thing that happened on election day is that the youth of america showed up and voted at the polls in record numbers this generation is beginning to realize the possibility that their rights can be taken away. They're beginning to realize the realities of the economy, of layoffs, of unionization. And with that, they're beginning to realize the importance of the democratic process. And I hope and pray that that becomes a habit and that they continue to show up at the polls because that's the future of democracy. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. Our guests have been Professor Lawrence Douglas at James J. Grossfeld, Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College, and Brent Turner, Director of Communications for Open Voting Consortium. A big thanks to our guests for joining us. It's been most enlightening. Be sure to join in next week. We will help out with your landlord-tenant issues. And in two weeks, a very special guest, legendary attorney J. Tony Serra. For tonight, my thanks to my co-host and partner in crime, Dean Johnson. And especially our thanks to all of you for listening in. And at the controls, Eric Jansen. I'm Jeff Hayden. Be safe and have a good night. Support for KLW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's lawyer referral service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. That's 415-989-1616 or sfbar.org for more information.